Heavenly Father, thank you for your record to us in the pages of the scriptures. And I pray that you would help us uh, this morning to glean fresh understandings of what we find therein. Lord, if our hearts are cold or hard, then I pray that you would soften us. If our minds are distracted, help us to focus. Lord, come by the power of your spirit and be amongst us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Many of us gathered here this past Wednesday for one or other of our Ash Wednesday services. And ashes were imposed on our foreheads with those words, Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. A sobering reminder of our human frailty and of our place in the world. The service was penitential and we lamented our sin and selfishness. Yet we were reminded also of God's great mercy. This season of Lent, the 40 days, not counting Sundays, that lead up to Easter, recalls Christ's 40 days in the wilderness and provide us with an opportunity to get real with God, with ourselves and our neighbours. Well, this morning I'm going to be focusing principally on our reading from Genesis chapter 3. And this account follows on from the wonderful creation story that we find in chapters 1 and 2. By the way, I, I want to say in passing that I think it's important that we don't misread these opening chapters of Genesis as if they were pages from a science textbook. They are not. Genesis is not trying to explain the mechanics of creation or even uh, addressing exactly how the world came into being. The author would not have been terribly impressed, I suspect, with uh, the debates that rage in some quarters of America today between creationism and evolution, or concerning the timescale of evolution, or the physics of the first few minutes. Those are simply not questions that the author is addressing. Frankly, creation is not a scientific category. Whatever scientists may discover about the dawn of the universe and the Big Bang many thousands of millions of years ago, those discoveries will not in and of themselves establish whether or not this was creation. But what we do see in this narrative from the scriptures, which is true and reliable and trustworthy and dependable, is the great theme of order out of chaos. And it actually undergirds and inspires the very possibility of scientific study. Well, that said, and if you've got beef with me about that, you'll have to talk to me afterwards. We join this great creation narrative right at the point when everything is going horribly wrong. The first two chapters established the beauty and majesty of all that God created. Everything was good. And the very pinnacle of God's creation was the creation of man. Men and women made in the very image of God. And that was very good. But in chapter 3, sin and death, shame and guilt break in. And the authenticity of these words, the profound truths of this story ring out through time and space and bring us face to face 
with our own sinfulness, our own mortality. And we are reminded of those words once more that come at the end of this chapter, that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. And that's all because of one little word, sin. That word, as Anne Payton reminded us on Wednesday, which is so out of fashion these days, whereas we would feel more comfortable speaking of our mistakes or errors of judgment. Sin is a rather less subtle word, a word which might better be understood as the human propensity to mess things up, where things include promises, relationships we care about, people we love, our own well-being and others. You and I are messed up people. I'm sorry if you find that offensive or it bursts your bubble, but it's the truth. And have you ever wondered why that is? Well, listen up, for this story from Genesis chapter 3 tells us why. When God created the world, everything was good. Adam and Eve were given almost unrestricted run of that garden. You may freely eat of every tree in the garden, God said. It was theirs to enjoy and use without constraint, save one. There was one boundary, one restriction in verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Contrary to popular belief, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not actually secured by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of our great nation. And I can say our now. <laughs> Genesis tells us that life and liberty are only ever secured from within God's gracious law. True freedom only ever exists when there are boundaries. In order for the tree to be at the center, man himself cannot be at the center. The tree of knowledge of good and evil it may stand for the knowledge of everything, or, or more particularly of God's wisdom. Wisdom that we cannot know or grasp. Wisdom that is greater than us and beyond us. And contrary to what we might think or others may tell us, we do not have moral autonomy. One of the pervasive lies that our society tells us is that there are no moral absolutes. Actually, that's an absolute statement, so you might think about that. Uh, anyway, in, in our post-enlightenment world, so-called empirical facts are often separated from or put up against moral values. And moral values, our society tells us, are relative or exist in the category of personal choice or maybe even mere preference. And so there are lots of people you will encounter who hold this view that there aren't any moral absolutes. And so we're left with a standard of what is right and wrong that is based on the shifting sands of what the majority of us believe. Although deep down I suspect many, many more people intuitively know that there's something wrong with that picture and our hearts confirm it even though our minds are increasingly conditioned to believe with Hamlet that there is nothing good or bad but thinking makes it so 
Well, Shakespeare was wrong. Uh, and I think we know that. Of course, that said, many moral dilemmas and grey areas and tough ethical situations remain. Of course they do. But our hearts know that certain things are evil while others are good. Indeed, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Well, Genesis chapter 2 sets this boundary, a marker concerning good and evil. And the center of life in the garden, and indeed of all life, belongs not to man, but to the word of God. God's restriction is not harsh or cruel or unreasonable. It is a boundary designed for our own good and our protection. Freedom without bounds leads to slavery, addiction, and death. But an important aspect of the freedom in the garden is also the freedom we have not to trust God. And it is our very freedoms that evil will exploit and spoil, turning our freedom into slavery. Well, let's look a bit closer at what's going on here in this narrative. And you'll note that the snake doesn't come to Eve as the devil with, you know, horns and a tail. The serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And the voice of temptation rarely uh, comes as the voice of evil. Our enemy is rather more sophisticated than that. Satan comes in all manner of guises and disguises. Now, this passage does not address where evil comes from, but it does give us some insight into how temptation works. And here it begins to take root in the woman's heart. It all began with a seemingly harmless discussion about God. The serpent doesn't deny the goodness of God. He just sows a seed of doubt. And he does it in a particularly insidious way. He twists what God had said ever so slightly. He takes God's word of freedom and makes it sound as if God is somehow mean and unreasonable. Did God say you shall not eat of any of the trees? Well, no, God didn't say that. But the seed of doubt is sown. And we start to think, well, if God is so good, if God really cares about me, then why do all these bad things happen to me? Or why would he deny me this one small thing that I desire? Isn't that how temptation works? We start to believe in the lies of entitlement. So we think, well, I've worked hard, I deserve this. Or I've been mistreated or taken advantage of, and so I deserve this small selfishness. I need some me time, this small relief from pain, this small indulgence. But God had clearly warned Adam and Eve of the penalty if they disobeyed that one prohibition. Satan ignores the vast scope of the permission and concentrates on one restriction, which he then exaggerates. His tactics haven't changed that much. He still ignores the permission. He ignores the fact that God has given us so much richly to enjoy. He ignores the great blessings of walking in a right relationship with God. 
He ignores the richness of faithful Christian marriages and families, the honesty and integrity of deep friendships and Christian community. And instead, he concentrates on a tiny and unimaginative list of prohibitions. There are actually relatively few things that God does not allow us to do, and there are always very good reasons why he prohibits them. But Satan wants to make God uh, into some great big spoil sport, as if his prohibitions are so unreasonable. And then he delights in telling us just how desirable that which is forbidden is for us. Not only does God, does Satan make forbidden fruit sound so desirable, but he thinks nothing of flatly contradicting God and instead makes his own promises of fulfillment. You shan't die, says the serpent. That's not right. God didn't possibly mean that. And so we drink the Kool-Aid. We believe the lies. And we say to ourselves, well, I'll just have one bite. I'll be fine. Maybe I'll be more than fine. This might make me into a more rounded person if I taste this delicious fruit, which is such a delight to look at and smell and touch and taste. Think how wise I will be. Think how fulfilled I will be. But you know, if you ever start down that path, that well-worn pathway of self-deception, you've already traveled too far. Once you get that close to the tree, as it were, and you can smell the fruit and see it and hold it, you're playing with fire. For then that temptation, whatever it is, that image, that food, that person, that money, that power, that status, gets a grip on us. And our pulse quickens and our curiosity is stirred and our passions are aroused. All reasonable decision-making goes out the window. One easy path from temptation to sin is that of instant gratification. She saw, she took, she ate. Immediate pleasure trumped all possible consequences. Or did it? One Ascension parent told me last week that her three-year-old said to her recently, But, Mummy, I don't like consequences. The sad truth is that the consequence of yielding to temptation is sin and death. St. Paul teaches us uh, in our reading this morning that sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin and so death spread to all because all have sinned. And this sin is a sickness of the soul. It is the tragedy of the human race. Though originally created perfect in the image of God, now forever spoiled and stained by sin, now we all die. And, and the picture today in the garden is just such a, a sad scene. Not only do Adam and Eve become divided from God, but they're also divided from each other. And they're blaming each other. And they're divided even within themselves. I think two of the most powerful negative human emotions are shame and guilt. After they eat the forbidden fruit, shame enters the scene. They, they sew fig leaves together and make loincloths for themselves. And had we read just one verse more, we would have encountered God coming into the garden 
looking for them. And then guilt gets added to shame. They heard the sound of God walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And God says, where are you? Why do you suppose he asks that question? Is he mad at them? Is he bellowing it out with an accusatory tone in condemnation and rage? Where are you? I don't think so. I don't think that God is walking in the garden red-faced with anger. I have this picture of God walking in the garden red-faced because of the tears that are running down his face as he says, where are you? Now, of course, he knows where they are. And yes, in one sense, I'm sure that God is angry with righteous anger in the face of the sin and the selfishness and the devastation and the evil that has been wrought by the couple's disobedience and refusal to trust him. But in this picture, for me at least, the overwhelming emotion is one of profound sadness. For God sees and feels the guilt and the shame, the hiding and the running away, and his heart breaks. So many people today live with the crushing burden of shame and guilt. I meet with people all the time who dislike themselves, who try and hide behind their work or their wealth or whatever they can find to hide behind. No longer do they see the beautiful person God has made them to be. Instead, they are ravished by sin and guilt and shame. But please hear this. If any of this resonates with you, it is precisely into the depths of such despair that we have words of hope and life today. For God is a God who freely offers his love and grace and forgiveness. From the very beginning, God has been rectifying what went wrong in chapter 3 of Genesis. In fact, even before the chapter's over, we see God covering their shame. He makes for them clothes out of animal skins. And the whole story in the Bible from beginning to the end, we start with everything being good. It's messed up here in chapter 3. And the rest of the book is about what God is doing to win and woo us back, to save us from the consequences of sin and the fall. And it's not because he doesn't take it seriously. Oh, no, not at all. He takes it absolutely seriously. And that's why he sent Jesus. And Paul writes in verse 18, Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of obedience leads to justification and life for all. For just as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. And that one man's obedience was, of course, that of Jesus himself who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we've looked at what happened in the garden, the dreadful consequences of sin and of how, how Adam and Eve fell. But I want to, in closing, take a brief look at how Jesus, the second Adam, did not yield to temptation. Jesus had just been baptized 
He'd received his commissioning. The Spirit had come down. It was the start of his ministry. And the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. As Anne said on Wednesday, there may be some here who are already in the wilderness as you navigate very tough times in your life. And it's in those times that our faith is tested. Is tested. And so it was for Jesus. Would he rely on his own human strength? Would he rely on um, the adulation of the crowds? Would it all go to his head? Or would he follow the path of obedience, the path of the suffering servant? You know, I've often thought about these temptations of Jesus. And and I think um, for a long time, I had a hard time getting into these because I didn't think they were that difficult. And, And I thought, well, you know, Jesus is God, right? So... It wouldn't mean anything to him, would it? Well, no, uh, that's not quite right. And I don't think that. The great mystery of the incarnation is that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. The things that Jesus was tempted with must have been just as attractive and enticing and full of promise as any temptation you or I ever face. Jesus was hungry. He was tired. And he was tempted. And he could have done anything that the devil was suggesting to him. But of course, to have done any of that would have been to disobey God the Father's plans and purposes. To take a shortcut would be the way to avoid the cross. Okay, we get that. But how did he do it? How did he resist these terrible temptations? Certainly, Jesus knew his scriptures, and he used them to very good effect. And certainly, he was obedient. And I think those things absolutely helped him. But I think something else is going on. It's important that we remember why Jesus had come in the first place. Why he was willing to suffer. After all, Jesus already had everything in the universe. There was nothing Satan could really offer him. He had it all. He was there in the beginning with God. He was God. He had all things under his feet, and yet he had laid that aside. Why? What was it that enabled Jesus to withstand the temptations in the desert at the start of his ministry? And then, even more so, at the end of his ministry, when he's tempted again in the Garden of Gethsemane. What enabled him to go through with it to the end, to love them to the end? Well, let me tell you what I believe it was. Above all else, surely... It was love. And it was love for you and for me. The one thing that Jesus, in a sense, did not have was us. And it's kind of shocking and breathtaking and hard to take it in, but it's true. It was God's love for the world that led him to take such drastic action to undo the consequences of what had happened in the garden. And Jesus' heart's desire was not for power or victory, first and foremost. Rather, it was his heart's desire for you, for me, for all of us. The judgment and wrath of God is that which we deserve. 
and that which we have earned by our own sin and selfishness. But the free gift of God is not like the sin. For whereas Adam's sin brought death to all, the free gift of God's grace in Jesus brings life to all who will receive him. So, when you face temptation, as I guarantee that you will, maybe later today, maybe in five minutes' time, or tomorrow, or the next day, whenever it is, what will you do? Will you play with the lies? Will you argue with God about the temptation? Will you toy with the whispers? If you do, those temptations will surely overcome you and you will fall. Or will you remember God's great love for you? Where are you? Where are you today? Are you hiding? Are you running away? Are you safe behind your mask? Wherever you are today, hear God's words of love and grace and his invitation to trust him. Even with your shame, even with your guilt, because he came to die to take that away. We do not have to carry that around. And so this Lent, I ask you, in the name of Jesus and of his church, to examine your heart. Rend your heart, not your garments. Happy are they whose sin is forgiven. How does that finish? Whose, thank you, whose guilt is put away. Happy are those whose sin is forgiven, whose guilt is put away. Do you want that happiness? Amen. Amen. The evil one promises you freedom and delivers you slavery. But the God of creation is the giver of life and freedom. Jesus, who was there before time began, who was there at the creation of the world, who saw the world get spoiled, is the one who came to put all things right. It is he who loves you and longs to forgive you. It is he to whom you can turn to for help. So whatever temptations you face... Fix your eyes upon Jesus, our Savior and friend, this day and every day. Worship the Lord and serve only him. Amen.